It's like I told Wit after the first two years, you hired me for what's about to come. Because what's about to come is the hard part. That's your boy. That's your judge of character. I don't know if I can follow that one up. Khalil Herbert is everything we dreamed of and more. Pete, nobody's <laughs> looking at your tweets. I love our guys. I love where we're going and what we're doing. We cannot stop fighting the good fight. I'm going to end up in a Columbia prison. I'm yelling into the void, <laughs> and that's what I like doing. Get you somebody not... that loves spruce tips as much as Pete does. Why did I pick Pitt to cover 14 points against NC State? I'm warm. Do we need to get better? You bet. And is that my responsibility? 100%. I want to know what you're drinking, Rob. It is roasty goodness, even though I was What's out. What's the percent on that? 11. Smells like you're drinking like a cleaning solution. We're going to put this old guy in a grave. The end has already been written. We just got to go through the hard part to get there. And I mow the lawn after work before the podcast. Welcome to Too Deep, Hokies Under the Influence, brought to you by Downtown Crown Wine and Beer and Dominion Wine and Beer. My name is Pete Berthod and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. Welcome to our 2021 Virginia Tech football season preview Season's less than a week away, Robbie. How you feeling, man? Well, I mean, our season's less than a week away, but we had, uh, you know, uh, some games, <laughs> if you call them that, yesterday, and that's uh, right, including uh, Nebraska falling on its face. I almost feel bad for them at this point, but they had years <laughs> and years of dominance, so I really don't feel that bad. They can always uh, rest on their laurels in uh, in that respect. That's right. Yeah, that game. It was getting a little out of hand at first, and Nebraska made it a game, but ultimately they were favored by six and a half, and they lost by eight. So it wasn't a good look for Scott Frost, that's for sure. Why don't you give us a cheers, and we'll get kicked off here, man. Well, we'll keep it right down the middle of the fairway, and cheers to finally getting what we hope will knock on wood real college football back. Uh, Last year was anything but no fans in the stadiums, all those uh, bad things. I'm going to be going to finally a game this year, assuming nothing crazy happens. So we have real Virginia Tech Hokies football on the way, and it will be uh, kicking off next Friday. Plus, we get one of the big opener games. It's a it's a it's a pretty packed slate, so it'll be nice to be one of the first games out there. Uh, we'll either get made fun of uh, for being one of uh, the bad teams, or maybe we pull off a a nice little upset and people are talking about that on Saturday. Absolutely, man. Cheers. Yeah, It is pretty cool to have that Friday night at 6 p.m. slot. There's a couple other games that night, but it's ODU and Wake, Duke and Charlotte. Nothing really (laughs) that's going to get you too fired up. Um, Saturday has a lot of big matchups. We get... Clemson and Georgia. Uh, over the weekend, there's Penn State and Wisconsin and Indiana and Iowa. There's a few nice ranked matchup. Texas is playing Louisiana Lafayette. Yep. I know everyone's ready for that ranked matchup. Um, but yeah, man, Friday night, it's coming so fast. I am pumped. We're going to get to our UNC preview a little bit later tonight. But this UNC team is coming in very highly ranked in just about every service. Uh, and I'm I'm getting into the matchups, and it, I'm it, I'm going to hold my tongue because we do have a season preview due first. But I'm getting a little antsy about that game. <laughs> yeah, I am as well. Uh, you you may have done even more research. It's it's a little bit of a conundrum. They had uh, well, I don't want to I don't want to lead too much. We got I got a bunch of notes on this, and I want to talk about some of the positions. But um, I, I said it before, but I think things have have jumped the shark a little bit on, on maybe Howell and, and, but you know, it was a pretty solid offense last year, the defense, not so much. I guess that's one thing without getting into to this year and the preview too much. 
that uh, that is what we know from last year. Yeah. So right now, let's do the uh, last couple weeks or last week and a half of camp notes because right after our podcast that we released, and that's the nature of this August time frame, is that the coaches are speaking, the players are speaking just about every other day, and more and more nuggets are coming out. And they were very complimentary of Keyshawn King. We hadn't heard much about him prior to our last podcast, but right afterwards, he's having the best camp he's ever had, and he's looked the best he's ever looked, and this and that. And that was music to my ears, because that was a kid that we both earmarked coming out of high school. We were excited about he had the speed. If he could just put some muscle on his body and learn to hold on to the football, you know, the sky was the limit. And I was pumped to hear that news. Yeah, we brought him up on the last podcast when we were talking about the running back position, and we actually said we haven't heard much about uh, King and where he's going to kind of fit into things and and how how he's been performing. And uh, we went across all of the running backs uh, and just said, you know, we'll we'll see what ends up happening. But it uh, that news popped, and I don't know how big he is right now, but that was that was the key thing was really the size and then holding on to the football, like you said. And I'm excited. He's got the speed. He's got the agility, the shiftiness. I hope that uh, he he sees his way to the field and and makes some per, get some production for us this season. It's pretty pretty awesome to hear. Yeah, the other thing I was excited about was the praise for the linebackers because that's another thing we said we don't really have a clue what's going on behind Dax and and Tisdale. And we heard about Ferguson. We've now heard them speak highly of artists, and maybe that artist is even dabbling a little bit at backer, which. That can be viewed in a couple different ways. One, we need help at backer. Right. <laughs> and and two, artists might not play very much at Mike. Yeah, that's right. And I think we we talked about that a little bit last week as well. So a couple things that were very relevant um, that we started to get a little bit more clarity on or in, in terms of artists, maybe a little less clarity on depending on what is... What's the rationale for for him, uh, you know, getting more playing time potentially? I will say Tyler was giving out kudos for the linebackers left and right, whether it was Jaden Keller, the young kid who they they think could really be a stud, mm-hmm. or Ferguson or Artis or McCray. Or, he's just said everyone's working really hard. They look good, you know, having the best camp, you know, it, all the the boilerplate stuff. But it's nice to hear your position coach be excited about his guys. That's right. The last two praises I got were for Caden Moore at offensive line. He's a young uh, COVID freshman, so he played a year, but this is his real first full year. And then Armani Chapman, a guy who's been in the program for a little while, is really pushing Dorian Strong for that other number one corner spot. And that's that's another thing I was so happy to hear because we need some solid DB play this year, solid corner play specifically with the way you know Farley and Waller didn't even really play for us last year uh, to get Waller back have Dorian burst on the scene and then get Chapman to push him. I mean, this is great. And you got, you know, guys like Murray for depth. Um, I love those two things. And and the nugget on the offensive line too, it sounds like Moore is, is pushing for right guards uh, spots. Yeah. I think you, you, because of your excitement about the defensive backs last week, I think that it, this is all because of you. It just came to fruition <laughs> after you, you know, attested to, you know, how excited you are. <laughs> you for... know, I'd like to take credit, but <laughs> Devin Taylor transferred yeah. <laughs> right after that's also your said fault, too, so <laughs> which is also my fault, exactly. And so, yeah, my bold prediction at the the DBs are going to be the best since 2014. 
It took on a bit of water when Taylor left, but the Chapman news might make it back to even, so I will stick with it. Uh, as for your prediction for top 65 in SP+, hey, that's a solid prediction because we were actually top 65 last year. I think we came in at number like 48 or something. Uh my number was but, not out of completely out of blue air. So I, I yeah, out of you, you, uh, thin you air. looked so at the wrong I, statistics. So yes. you want to revise. Yeah. So I, I had a, I said one Oh three, which is the accurate number, but it was total defense, which is a garbage number. And it's even worse in a COVID season with different numbers of games. So I'm going to go with, yeah, we were 48 last year yeah. for a frame of reference. I think we will uh, creep towards, I can't say below it cause that'd be too much. I think we, nah, it's bold predictions. I'll say we get into the top 30. How's that? That would be Ooh, good. Top 30 SP plus defense. That would be impressive. That would be that a would big be jump. And that's bold, baby. All right. Next news note I had. This is not a camp note. Uh, Bo Davidson has left the program for Texas Tech. He was our recruiting director and it was actually just named recruiting director in May. I think it was yeah. May. <laughs> so it hasn't been very long. Uh, I think I tweeted out, rip the lengthy Bo Davidson director recruiting era. It's over. And hey, we had a good month there. I'd say yes. we brought in a couple four stars. Uh, we lost a four star in Simmons, but uh, overall more more good than harm in those few months. But yeah, I'm kind of shocked to see him leave right after that promotion from within. But he's a Texas guy and guess, you know, they offered him some, some good money and he wanted to go home. Yeah, because now I guess he can do Texas to Texas. So then he did, there doesn't have to be. Uh, Maybe he can get some of the guys who hit the transfer portal to come to Texas Tech now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I joked. I think I joked with you and Joe, and I said, "Was he really even the director of, of recruiting for us if he hadn't earned any PTO yet to take?" So uh, <laughs> I don't think his accrual had built up yet. So there was no days right. off. Right. Uh, yeah, he was with the program for a while, but yes, that title was not very long as the director. I am curious to see where we go with that. If we bring in a DMV guy, a North Carolina guy, you know, it's got to be an East Coast. You got to figure, you got to skew away from, you don't need to be from a region to recruit the region. We talked about that before, but yeah. I feel like ties to the high schools, being from those areas, it helps. Yeah, I'll be interested. And how quickly they make the move is also going to be interesting. Um, now that we have, it, it's not that big of a change, but you know, you have early signing day that is, um, it comes quick. So yeah. uh, that's it'll it'll be it'll be interesting. I think we probably make a move inside of the next month. The alliance between the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC was big news last week, the week before, and the conference to reveal what this is going to mean was last Tuesday. And I, I, for one, as a college football fan, was excited to hear what they had to say. And I was talking about it with my brothers-in-law and stuff. And and then the article comes out or the news conference hits and it's like, oh, yeah, they don't they don't have anything. <laughs> yeah. It, it was that, uh, I think, the fart sound that you usually make on the podcast is basically right. what it was. So the, <laughs> there's no contract. I don't want to hate on it too much. The, yeah. It, everybody's ripping the more cynical podcasters out there on a national level, uh, that like to be funny with it are ripping ACC, big 10 and big 10. They really didn't have to do anything in the pac 12 for doing, trying to do something after really getting, uh, blindsided by the move with Texas, um, and Oklahoma to the sec. 
I feel like uh, you need to chirp back with something. Granted, they chirp back with nothing. There's nothing contractual. There's just a, hey, we're going to try and work together and you know, not not necessarily poach each other and trying to figure out schedules to work with each other, which we're already doing. If you look at the number of ACC and Big Ten teams that were supposed to play each other and the number of Big Ten teams and Pac-12 teams that were scheduled and already have started playing each other, it was already happening. It was really the second tier of teams. It wasn't or third tier of teams even that it wasn't really happening with. Yeah. And in the playoff era, there's been a lot more emphasis on trying to schedule up anyway. So you're right. This has already kind of been happening. The only it was a nothing burger, you know, and as as we like to say, the only thing that was talked about was essentially scheduling. And like you said, there is no contract. And Warren made some ridiculous comment like if you need a contract to deal with someone, then it's not the kind of people you want to be doing business with. It's like that's not how it works. (laughs) Contracts are (laughs) used for a reason. But that's besides the point. You need them. You need something in place. It's and especially it's like all things. I was listening to a different podcast. You don't know if there's going to be a change of administration in those. So the commissioner is going to change. You put those things like you put laws in place because you don't know who's going to be there to interpret them down the road. So you have to have those things so everybody has something to go off of. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it was a little silly. Hopefully something more comes up of it, comes of it later and we'll find out. The last thing I wanted to note was just that some of the writers from 247 and Andy Bitter and some of the guys from Sons of Saturday put out their record predictions. And there was kind of a composite picture that Matei C., who we've had on the podcast, he he posted it to his Twitter. And whether it was Andy Bitter or Billy Ray Mitchell or uh, <clears throat> Doug Bowman or whoever, uh, they all had us at seven and five or above. Not mm-hmm. one guy out of, I think it was nine guys or something, put us at six and six or below. So you could you could view that as encouraging or you could view it as groupthink. I'm not, I'm not sure which way to interpret it, but I did find it interesting that everyone who follows the team pretty darn close of that group, like thinks we're going to do, you know, seven and five or better. Yeah, I think, and you and I, we had, you had six and six and I had seven and five. So I guess I'm, I'm victim of, uh, of the group think. Yeah. No, so, no. <laughs> but I, I said that before, uh, I'd seen that. And actually I haven't gone through everybody's individual picks on, on that. No, no slight to anybody, but honestly, I, I, I don't really care. I have my own thoughts on, on mm-hmm. what's going to happen this season. So, well, speaking of picks, the polls have come out and we talked about a few of them, you know, Athlon putting us at 40, uh, CBS sports putting us at th- 39, but I picked up a couple more, uh, the FPI, they're kind of high on us. They have us at 26 going into this year. That's the highest I've seen. And then the projected SP Plus has us at 33, and that would be the second highest. So some of those more respected computer metrics view us more favorably than, let's say, The Athletic, who puts us at 46. Sagarin put us at 43. So of those six I just named, Athlon, ESPN, FPI, CBS, Sagarin, Athletic, and the projected SP plus, we came in at an average of 37.8. So right about at 38th in college football. For those same metrics, UNC averaged 12.7. So just about at 13. So that was just kind of a framework of what we're looking at in that matchup coming up in the first game of the season. But by and large, most people don't have us anywhere near the top 25. And if you take the Massey composite, for example, I think they had us at 42 and that was like 34 different rankings. So 
we've got our work cut out for us to prove that uh that we do deserve to be ranked higher and, and we can do that week one yeah all i hear there is it sounds like unc is just one almost exactly one third the team that virginia tech is because i'm going with the bigger numbers better there so I'm 12, <laughs> um that's that's a big that's a big separation so uh between it is. the two. So that's higher for UNC than I would have thought on average. I figured some people would have them up there, but that that is that's pretty or lower, I should say. So going into 2021, looking at these rankings and just thinking about the season in general, the biggest storylines for me are Fuente seat and how hot is it? And coach ham and the defense and how he does in in his first real year as a defensive coordinator i'm not trying to give him a pass for last year but with all the guys we had out and he wasn't even on the sideline for the first two games i don't believe yeah uh this is his first real year as coordinator how does he get us back on track that would be the second big storyline is the hot seat for fuente and coach ham did you have any other things you were thinking about storylines that you're watching going into the year does that fit your bill no, I think I think it I think it fits the bill. You know, with how hot tied in with the hot seat piece of it, I'll be interested to see if Fuente. I don't mean to put it this way, but there's no really other way to put it. Goes down with the ship uh, with Brad and letting him call the offense. He's always said that he lets uh, Brad do his thing. You you'd wonder if at the very end somebody tries to you know grab the rudder on the titanic and and move it away from the iceberg you know and and try to avoid that things are i mean they're he's the second highest you know rated on hot seat going into the season based on uh dennis dodd's annual rankings i think scott Mm -hmm. frost now just bumped him maybe uh back one with (laughs) that with with that move uh in that game but that that's that's tied in with I think the Fuente uh, commentary that you had is whether he does yeah. get more involved there. Maybe we never get there because maybe Burmeister and the offense looks great, and we're going to get into the offense in a little bit. First, I want to go over the schedule and just how it stacks up in terms of toughness, how it's laid out, and it, to me, the schedule is actually kind of sneaky difficult. We start with a lot of home games, but at the end of the season. We have four away games in a five-game stretch, including trips to Miami and to Boston. Uh, Atlanta's thrown in there, too. So long-distance road trips that you need to fly to. And I know that you know Richmond and MTSU are on there, but at a conference, having Notre Dame and WVU, a Power 5 team on the road, like it's, it's kind of a tough schedule, in my opinion, even in the weak division that we're in. Yeah, not some. I think you started to allude to it, the travel, and I think you put a tweet out about the travel that, that you have in that five-game stretch. Outside of playing in Cuba, I think, or on the West Coast, <laughs> the, yeah, if we did a, a, an away game, we could do it like they do when they play them in Ireland and Dublin, and that would probably be the only tougher stretch that you could get out of that, heading um, on back-to-back. Um, it's really, I think, three out of those four weeks they're going to traveling to to you know pretty meaningful different locations. So that's mm-hmm. that's going to be rough. And as you said, you you have an at WVU game, which which is tough given the environment there, the hostile nature of of that rivalry between us and WVU over the years. You have a, a game at UVA, and let's be honest. 
people still every year think more and more highly um, of what's going on with with UVA and kind of their their passion for um, you know good defense, solid play, and good execution. So I, I think it's a it's a very tough schedule outside of you know three or four teams, probably four teams that I think we should be able to to feel pretty comfortable that there's there's not going to be any scares with. Yeah, the tough thing for Virginia Tech is too like. Yeah, Richmond's on the schedule, but that's a, that should be a surefire win. You, you rate the probabilities of a win, which we're going to kind of go through in a minute. That's number one on my list because it's an FCS team. It's not a particularly good FCS team the last couple of years, and we should beat them. We should beat them by four touchdowns, five touchdowns, but you just never know with Virginia Tech. You really don't. MTSU, same thing. Syracuse. I mean, is Syracuse a team that you can confidently say, even in their current state, that we win that game hands down. No, you can't. No. no. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I flip-flopped on them and Duke, I think. And I actually have Syracuse just because of what's happening in the coaching situation as a as the easier of the games between that and Duke. I think you may have it the other way around. but Yeah. Yeah, we play, if you look at the Athlon ratings, we play three top 15 teams. I think everyone knows who they are. And then we play six top 50 teams, according to Athlon. So you've got half of your schedule, a a pretty reasonable matchup. And I I don't even think that UVA was one of those top 50 teams. But yeah, it's it's the Coastal and it's Syracuse as the crossover game. So naturally people look at it like, ah, it's not that tough. But I I don't know, man. The the way that ends and with our depth, I'm I'm very nervous about the, the games on the back end of that schedule. So why don't you give me the toughest game to win on our schedule in your opinion. So we're starting with the the toughest one. Yeah. What's your, what's your toughest game to win? I actually have the Notre Dame. I've come around on that team. I think that they're going to be really solid. The running backs are good. Their tight ends are really good. I think we'll see what happens at quarterback. Their line is usually pretty solid on both sides. So I don't see very many gaps in this Notre Dame team. So I know it's a home game. So that, there's probably others that you might think an away game would be a little bit tougher, but Notre Dame had no problem coming in to the last game that I saw at Lane uh, and and beating <laughs> up on us there. So I don't know that they're going to be all intimidated by the uh, by the atmosphere. And with Notre Dame, they're so used to travel, uh, you know, playing West Coast, playing USC, going into other people's environments. They play so many different types of teams on different conferences. I think. And they've been around for such a long time. I don't think really heading to somebody else's stadium has all that much of an impact on them at this point. It's a fair point. I have the game at Miami as my toughest. And I know we went down there and won last time after the after the big Duke route. Yep. But we typically have a hard time down there. It's later in the season, which is twofold. One, our depth will be tested at that point in the year. And two... Derek King is coming off that injury, and every week that goes by, if if he gets healthier and healthier, that could become a problem. So I had at Miami, who's returning a ton of production, as my hardest game. My second hardest game I, I put at BC, which I know I got a little bit of crap for it, but like going to Chestnut Hill late in the year, I think we have Pitt or something before that. I, I got to look at this again, but that's just a tough game. And with Jerkovic and Zay Flowers, that offensive line, a bunch of guys back on D, um, what I consider to be a pretty good young coach, yep. 
that just seems like a really tough game to me. And then I had Notre Dame third as my third hardest game. What were your two and three? I had at Miami and then I had UNC. So Boston College did not crack my my top three. Okay. Um, and then I have them ranked them all the way. I have them all the way down. If uh, I want to keep rolling, the next sure. one. Uh, my fourth hardest is Pitt. I, I there hasn't been a lot of talk about them this year. I know you know it's kind of ebbs and flows. They always have pretty good defense. Pitt is just it's a wild card game, which doesn't really make me feel very comfortable. It's another home game that I have as tough, which is a little bit weird. But and I have BC right behind that. Yeah, I had Pitt as my sixth hardest because I had WVU higher. I had WVU was my fourth one because going to Morgantown, the first away game for this team after the pandemic, they haven't been in an opposing crowd in over a year. It is going to be a hostile crowd, as you talked about earlier. And Neil Brown's a really good coach. Yeah, They have starters coming back on the offensive line. Guess what? They just inherited Doug Nestor to go on that offensive line. They got a good returning quarterback. They got a good returning running back. They play hard-nosed defense. I, I I don't know. I don't feel particularly good about the WVU game on the road when you consider a lot of the rankings that have come out have them ahead of us in most of the in most of them and we're not at home this time. So, if if you think that at home is given Tech an advantage over UNC, you got to look at it the other way <laughs> going to Morgantown. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough a tough place to play. I do have them as my sixth hardest, and I'll throw this out there a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but also, honestly, WVU is playing for a home at this this point with what's happening in the Big 12. Uh, Their stock rises and falls with what they do this season to try and remind people that they're a big-time program. I don't know what's Mm going to happen with the Big 12 and where those teams are going to land. I know they're scrambling like crazy to figure it out, but... The, the Big 12 sunsetting yeah, for all intents and purposes. I know there's rumors about them picking up Boise State and BYU, and I hope that happens so the Big 12 can stick around. But yeah. it's just as likely that it goes the other direction, and they're trying to find a home. So some marquee wins could go a long way for them. Absolutely. I actually didn't have UVA until the seventh hardest game, and I know it's away, but we know we play UVA well. They're not expected to be very good. Uh, I know they're bringing back the quarterback, but they lost a bunch of those defensive guys that we've been hearing about for years. I had at GT is the next one. Syracuse and Duke, we talked a little bit about it a second ago. I think Syracuse is a little bit tougher, but you're right. Cutcliffe is the superior coach, but both of those teams should be very bad. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, we flip-flopped. I had Middle Tennessee is the easiest. Richmond, a step harder. And that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. I just, I don't ever know when Richmond, I feel like Richmond is a team that ebbs and flows when they're at their prime, they can compete with the JMUs out there. You know, a lot of the good FCS teams and I'm not read in enough to know when that's going to happen. I do do know middle Tennessee has has been struggling as of late. And then I think we flipped on, yeah, Syracuse and Duke, but I also had uh, uh, UVA and GT in the same spots you did. Yeah. So the BC game was after the trip to Atlanta. So we got to Atlanta, then to Boston, home to Duke, to Miami, to UVA. It's it's just brutal. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's just that's brutal. Not anyway, so that's the schedule. I want to get into our offense and then the defense a little bit, our final record prediction before we do UNC. But first, I want to take a moment to talk about our sponsor, 
Downtown Crown Wine and Beer and Dominion Wine and Beer, the two best beer stores in the DMV. Downtown Crown is right where 270 and 370 meet in Gaithersburg. It's a beautiful setup. They've got a bar in there. They've got outdoor seating, and it's also a fantastic store. Great wine selection, incredible local beer selection. They're constantly working with local breweries, having events, getting some of the best stuff that no other places can get, getting it earlier than a lot of other places can get it because our guy Arash is just that good at wheeling and dealing with the county. But it's a it's a really great store. And down in Falls Church, his brother runs the Dominion Wine and Beer, which me and Robbie Robbie have frequented often, sitting outside, having a bite to eat. You know, they got the main beer company on tap. They got all kinds of great breweries on tap. And that can selection in there is second to none. It's a wall of cans like you've never seen local beers from virginia you get a a really nice virginia beer selection in there you get a really nice maryland selection in the downtown crown store both of them can't be beat i know robbie feels the same way i do yeah i love that place i was just in there a couple weeks ago so um yeah we're uh we're also we're also a client let's just put it that way (laughs) yeah they've got online ordering they've got curbside pickup they're still doing all the things that came about with the pandemic they're doing them just as good or better than anybody else uh, so head over to those two places right on, on West Broad in Falls Church is where Dominion is. And like I said, right up in Gaithersburg is downtown Crown. Robbie, why don't you tell me what you're drinking right now? So I'm still on my non-alcoholic beer or I'm going to start going with uh, AF beers because I am having the Brewdog Elvis AF, which is uh, alcohol free, I'm assuming, but it has its uh, AF. <laughs> it, I I have a feeling that it has another meaning for, for some of us. So, um, it's a, uh, it's good. This is a, it's a IPA and has a ton of kind of grapefruit, uh, added into it. So it's brewed in Ohio. I think it's out of Columbus. So Brewdog is a non-alcoholic brewery, but they've, uh, either started or maybe they were an alcoholic brewery and then went into non-alcoholic. So you can also get, uh, the Brewdog Elvis uh, as a regular um, alcohol beer, and I haven't had that yet. Um, and I'm assuming it's the same flavor profile with, uh, you know, grapefruit. And it's it's pretty good. I will say for, it has a good amount of flavor for a non-alcoholic beer. And, but I think that's mostly because they overloaded it with a, uh, a whole bunch of grapefruit. So it kind of shocks your palate. So you forget that you're, <laughs> uh, you're drinking something without any, uh, without Is any it sour? in it at all a, a little Tart? bit it has a little yeah it has that kind of punch you would imagine from from uh the grapefruit citrus in there but it's good i it's one of the ones i get it's harder to get than some of the other brew dog beers they have a hazy af they have a punk af a couple of those that they go with the same uh name kind of uh scheme with and this one's a little tougher to get but i found it so i picked some up I am drinking the Conehead IPA by Zero Gravity Brewing. This is out of Burlington, Vermont. The profile of the drink is 5.7. So that's that's like what I like. That's That fits my sensibilities. It's kind of a low alcohol IPA. This is just above a session, but definitely less than a double. And it's good. It's It's a very traditional IPA in the sense that like, it's not brewed with any fruity stuff. 
It's not, it's, there's no sweetness. There's no lactose. It is just a straightforward IPA, but lighter in color. It's kind of got almost like a Pilsner-esque color, but you can see through it. No haze whatsoever, really. Just the slightest bit of, of translucent nature to it. But the cone head, it's a beautiful can, bright blue. I'm not, not sure I've had zero gravity, but I've heard of it. And we know there's a lot of great breweries up in Vermont, so there's probably a lot of competition, but I have seen this beer all over New Jersey. So they, this the Zero Gravity place must be getting some decent distribution as of late. But I like the beer. Not my favorite. A little too bitter on the back end for me, but I, I'm enjoying it right now. Thanks. All right, let's hop into the VT offense. I kind of want to go over – we'll do offense, defense, special teams. Special teams won't take too, too long. And then we'll give you our final thoughts on, on just the season as a whole. I'm a little bit – Nervous about this offense taking a big step back due to the departures of Khalil Herbert and Doug Nestor, Darisol, Hudson, our backup quarterbacks. Yep. There's a lot that that we kind of lost valuable pieces of this offense, even if they didn't play every game. But I still think there's a lot there, particularly at wide receiver and tight end. I uh, I was impressed when I looked at last season's final numbers. 16th in yards per play, 20th an offensive SP plus and all these numbers were with playing multiple guys at the quarterback position. I I never really thought like if we had a season where we finished top 20 in SP plus, I would have thought Virginia tech, you know, went 10 and two or something, you know, I would have thought that was a sensational season and particularly on the ground. It was like Virginia tech of old running for a ton of yards per carry. In fact, Cooler Herbert broke the school rushing record for yards per carry so it was just about the best offensive season we could have ever expected. And yet there was still something a little bit lacking about this offense. Why do you, why do you think we both feel like that after the year? Maybe it's just because the, the passing routes and the passing scheme just seems so familiar with what we had seen not work previously. Um, and we're not seeing a lot of change in that we're not seeing the confidence that i always build and what i see with a team that i feel like can do whatever they want to teams you know offensively is really when i see a team like ohio state that'll run slant routes right up the middle like they don't care right they know that they're going to complete a pass and then get a 20 yard chunk on or 15 yards at worst and we have to rely a lot more on the outside it seems like you know i for me it feels like a lack of confidence. It may, it may be a great scheme and it may work out, but I don't think we did anything particularly different. And the passing stats last season indicated as much that it, it really didn't change a whole lot from, from the season prior. So I think that maybe um, is just kind of seeing the same thing that is somewhat effective at times and other times it's just it's three and outs that you're just sitting there banging your head against the wall. Why we can't make something, something work. And then you're, then everybody's just run the dang ball, run the dang ball. And you feel like the passing threat is not, not always there. Maybe it's a little bit of that, but it's tough for me to put my finger on. Yeah. I think the third down conversion rate definitely plays into it. You see us go three and out a few too many times. And, and we were just about 80th in third down conversion rate last year, the year before, the year before that. It, 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 we have not been uh, efficient on third down whatsoever. And I think last year we had a lot of all or nothing. You know, we hit some home runs in the running game with Khalil Herbert. We had a few breakout plays from the wide receivers, but then we would just stall for long periods of time. And the inconsistency at the quarterback position doesn't help 
obviously, but I do think that what you're talking about, route design, play calls, offensive design in general, it it hasn't been cohesive. Like we have pieces and I think that Vice is a good coach and I think the running backs are well coached and I I think like some of what Corn does works, but there's not a consistency to it to go out and put back-to-back drives together all the time. And we'll have our games where we're awesome. And then we'll have our games where we just know it's not going to be a good day, you know, three drives in. It, and it, it, it's frustrating because the adjustments aren't there. Yeah, I think you you nailed it as I, as I think about what you were saying there. How many times where we would have those games and you're on Twitter and it just clicks. So we have two awesome drives and they look good. Maybe there's a couple long passes in there, but we're really getting you know decent chunk plays, moving the ball along, score a couple touchdowns, and then there's nothing for two quarters in a row where it's just three and out, three and out. Either two things are happening there. Either our offense is really easy for the defense to adjust to is one potential until we have enough time to really fully implement whatever we're adjusting to to counter what they've already kind of adjusted to for us. Or we're not good at making those adjustments. And we have one set scheme that really works for us. And as soon as the defense figures it out and we do try and pivot, we're not effective at doing that. And we're not versatile in what we need to do. And I'm not saying you have to completely change your scheme, but there needs to be enough there to keep the defense on its on its toes. So I think what you said was you know well articulated and, and probably what subconsciously I was thinking all the time. I was just waiting for the drought to start and then have two quarters where I could, yeah. I could probably go run groceries and not really have to worry about it, except the opponents probably run up some points on us. And if you look at our average scoring, you know, we were 43rd in the country. So you take a 16th in yards per play and then you get 43rd in scoring. It tells me you're not efficient in the red zone. It tells me you're not converting on third down. It, it You're having a problem translating that offense into points when it matters and that's we saw that we we saw that when you watch the games that's kind of what you see that inconsistency that that difficulty in situational football where Brad Cornelson struggles but let's get into the positions a little bit because there is a lot of bright spots on this offense and i want to start with the offensive line because they were so good last year i mean we we paved the way for one of the best running backs we've ever had and i don't think we're going to truly appreciate Khalil Herbert until we get a few more years removed but he was so incredible and that offensive line was a big reason why even though we lost Darisol Nestor and Hudson i still think this has the ability to be a top 5 unit in the ACC. Tanuta Smith and Hoffman, they are very, very good players. The questions come in on the right side of that line, but we've got guys like Silas Zanzi who have been in the program and Johnny Jordan, a transfer who started at Maryland that can pick up a lot of slack. And so I feel good about where this offensive line could go, but we have some questions on the right side. Yeah. And honestly, since Vice has been in the program, the offensive line, at least in my mind, has gotten better every year. And that includes developing people, even that have switched over from uh, the other side of the ball and helping develop them into to really exceptional players. Darisaw obviously has unbelievable instinct and talent that he was born with. But, I mean, 
that's a pretty dramatic, um, you know, draft pick to, to bring out to, you know, to develop him as quickly as they did every year. I think we have more and more confidence in the offensive line, which is something that we lacked for a while for, for, you know, some under many of years. I mean, it was, it was probably a good four or five years where I think we were, we were really struggling there. So it feels good to have that confidence back. So I think the names that you you mentioned are all important, but it's also just a general confidence with what's been happening on the offensive line over over the past probably three to four seasons. Yeah, it's it's a culture position. You need to have a certain culture in place to have success there. It's it's your Wisconsin's, it's your BCs. Like they always have good offensive lines, and they've had different coaches, they've had different position coaches, and they just always have good lines because they've got good culture. And I think Vice is building that. I don't know what's going to happen at right tackle, but I think we're going to be okay. Whether it's Clements, the the young kid, or uh, Janzi moves over and has to play there at least early on. Maybe Tyrell Smith even. We'll see. We have options at right guard. We talked about more and how he's pushing, but it could be Janzi. It could be Jordan. I, I'm not worried about the starters. I do worry about the depth, but that could be said about just, just about any position except for the next one, which is running back. And these guys will have an opportunity to be very good. No, there's not Khalil Herbert, but can we replace you know 90% of his production with what I think will be kind of a three-headed monster? Yeah, I think you. we need to find a way to create what he was able to do through multiple. And, and, and honestly, if you can find two of those three guys that are really good at what they do, whether it's Bulls Day, you know, being more of a bulldozer, more of a shifty back, speed on the outside, if you can use them in the right way, I think it can be really uh, effective. There's this thought process that once you get a running back in there and they start getting their legs underneath them, you got to give them time and confidence, uh, which I think is absolutely fair. But on the flip side of that, what I don't want to see, and we talked about on the last podcast, is just the, the, the split, one-third, one-third, one-third. You put somebody in for a quarter or a quarter and a half, and then you bring in the next guy, that is not going to replicate what Herbert was able to do for us last year because each of these guys has a skill that I think, you know, individually can cause some some real havoc for a defense, but it has to be shown to people in multiple kind of different plays rather than if people start setting up and, and we have our bigger backs and we put Holston out there and, and he's ready to kind of, you know, play hard, physical, up the middle, and they're going to start adjusting to that And until, you know, you bring in the next running back, and then they'll have to adjust to have a little bit more speed on the outside and things like that and prepare for that defensively. So I hope we see a little bit more of, of that to try and replicate what, uh, what Herbert was able to do last year. Yeah, I said on last podcast, my bold prediction was that Blackshear would lead us in total yards from scrimmage, but that didn't necessarily mean he would lead us in rushing yards because I think Holston... He could be that guy. He really impressed me last year. Maybe learning from Herbert just in how to hit a hole, how to make a cut, how to respond to the offensive line. But he's up to 215, and he looked much better when he was spelling Khalil last year. Keyshawn talked a little bit about him at the beginning, and I think he has all the potential in the world. It's just whether he's putting in the work and ready and ready to contribute but Blackshear is still the most dynamic guy. He yep. could really provide our offense a different type of spark than that Holston or King could to me. So yep. I'm excited about the position. Marco Lee could be used in some short yardage backs. They're talking a lot about him and his size. 
Uh, maybe even Blumrick in short yardage. You know, you're on the goal line, you throw the big QB in there. But uh, it's not going to be Khalil Herbert, but I think I think we could get close just because with Braxton, the run game and the running backs seem to play very well. Yeah. And Holston, I think, also what impressed me last year about him was his yards after contact. So, you know, he was he repeatedly was able to gain an extra two to three yards when even when a linebacker squared up on him, he still was able to eke out and fall forward and, and get a few extra yards, which it honestly saved our, our butts in a lot of different instances and uh, last year. So that was another thing. And I think if, um, to your point, it does seem, and I don't know why it is, but it does seem with Burmeister in there, the running backs do seem to play a little bit better. Um, I agree. Yeah, I think it's just when we'll talk about it when we get the Burmeister, but it has to do with just the way his reads are. I, I really think, and what he his threat of his running puts yep. on the defense affects their running. Moving to wide receiver slash tight end, this is the number one unit in the ACC according to David Hale. So there we go. <laughs> that's let's go with that. Trey Turner, Tavion Robinson, James Mitchell. These are all ACC caliber guys if they played to their potential. I don't think they're all going to make first-team ACC, but they could all be on a team if they play well. Turner, he's averaged 16 yards a catch the last couple of years, but he just hasn't been consistent. Or should I say he hasn't been consistently showing improvement <laughs> or showing up consistently in games? Because if you look at his numbers, it's like 530 yards, 530 yards, 530 yards every single year. Yeah, so exactly. he's consistent in that respect. He just... Game in and game out, you don't know what you're going to get from Trey. And that that's always bugged me a little bit. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, to summarize where on in this position, the we'll get to, uh, you know, Braxton on the offense. And I think this is going to carry through to my thoughts, you know, across the team is it has a lot of potential, but everything has to go right. Mm-hmm. So we don't have at least on paper, what looks like a lot of room for error. We do at running back. I think we can we can move guys around. We have enough bodies. At offensive line, maybe. We talked a little bit about the depth. Hopefully everybody stays hung, uh, healthy and um, we don't have issues there. But at, at wide receiver, we really need those top guys to, to really perform. We don't we can't really suffer any injuries, um, things like that. So there's, there's just not a lot of room for error. Everything has to kind of go right for us to have the offense that I think is the potential of the first team that, you know, that we have here. Yeah. I love Tavion and he'll factor in on special teams as well, but Mitchell is a huge key for us yeah. and how much we use him on the outside, how much we use him on the inside. He could very well end up with the most receiving yards on this team, most receiving touchdowns. Everyone's been talking about payout for years and he's had his injury problems. He was cleared as pretty much a full go the last couple of days. So he, his hamstring apparently isn't bothering him too much. He's ready to go, and he's a freak athlete. He's super fast, even with the injuries. Caleb Smith is a reliable option. But with how much we've heard about <laughs> Dwayne Lofton and Jalen Jones and even Dallin Wright last year a little bit, they're hyping up the younger guys. I don't know if that's good or bad if no one's showing up, so they need to hype up the younger guys, but – it's a little thin, like like you said. We can't if James Mitchell goes down, Trey Turner goes down, whatever. We don't like to talk about injuries, but they're they're a fact of life. 
Um, yeah, we're we're playing with fire a little bit at, at the wide receiver position, but there is talent here. Yeah, there absolutely. is very good players here. And if everyone stays healthy, it's one of the best units in the ACC. I have no doubt about that. It's just that's that's a big if. And backing up James Mitchell, just to, to finish it off, Nick Gallo, yep. he will play a lot. He will play a lot blocking. He will play a lot special teams. I don't know how many catches he'll get, but Fuente has loved Gallo ever since he set foot on campus. Yep. So let's move to Burmeister. Uh, you can start with your thoughts, uh, but I'll just preface it with, He's a ridiculous athlete that Fuente has been very highly complimentary of this offseason. Yeah, I got him not greater than 65% completion percentage, so I got to build him up here. But I don't, this is going to be probably one of the most interesting quarterback situations in the ACC. I won't say like in the country, but anybody who thinks they know exactly how this season's going to play out for Burmeister is kidding themselves. And I think that means he has a, a huge amount of upside potential for us. I think his run threat is, is real. He's a physical runner. I, I think that's one thing that gives me a little bit of concern. We do not have depth behind him. Uh, he does. He doesn't tend to shy away from too many hits and, uh, and he's taken some big ones, um, you know, over, over the time. So he's, he can be a pretty physical runner. He's he's quick. Um, throwing the ball, I think his accuracy is probably, you know, it, it's okay. It's not great. I think that um, that's one area that if, if he takes a step up in his accuracy down the field this season, I think he could be a really dangerous quarterback. And then, you know, the top quartile of the ACC uh, this season, but that's the piece that I think the downfield throwing really just needs to to improve. I think there were some times they would throw throw the ball and it it just looked really pretty, and other times you're kind of shaking your head, wondering, you know, whether he was looking at the same field that you were. Yeah, Fuente's offensive philosophy I think demands a lot from his quarterbacks, and that even goes back to Paxton Lynch and the way he had to run the ball. But it's it's quick reads, mesh point the running ability and accuracy in the passing game. And you know how much he values not turning the football over as well. So it's, it's hard to play quarterback in this system because although we do like to run the ball, that was kind of a, that was kind of a necessity last year rather than the rule. That's mm-hmm. not typically the focus of a Virginia tech Fuente offense. Uh, and him coming back, it's the first time we're really like going into a season knowing early who our starter is going to be, whether that's by default or not. And we are finally getting that second year starter that we've been waiting for. We thought we had it with Hooker. We thought we had it with Willis. We thought we were going to have it with Josh Jackson, but he got injured three years into the season. The funny thing about Hooker and Willis when they came back as a second year starter, they both got benched. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so like that doesn't bode very well. Uh, there's a bull and a bear case for Braxton Burmeister, and no one really knows how it's going to be. The bear case is that he completed 57% of his passes. His rating was even with Kenny Pickett. His QBR was 63rd nationally. He's a, He was a fourth-year player with a great offensive line, two years in the system, and he never rushed for more than 60 yards. He threw for 200 yards once. Th- that's, that's, a, that's a bear case, and it's a pretty good bear case. The bull case on... Burmeister is that his best two QBRs were later in the year against Clemson and UVA when he was healthy when he had time to prepare when he was more comfortable as the starter 
he has a better grasp on the offense than just about any other QB we've had being in the system for three years. And that was reflected in, in Fu's media comments about how he feels better about the passing game and the ability for a quarterback to get through his reads, which is immensely yeah. important. Um, and whether they simplify the offense even more this year to help him and simplify those route concepts and all that kind of stuff, I don't know. But the bull case is he showed his improvement later in the year when he was healthy. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the, the blind spot comment, I think, is is also one to, that you hit on to throw out there. There were times where he was not getting through his progressions and his reads, and there were people wide open that he he missed. And, um, you know, everybody wanted to kind of chuck the remote at the screen and and people were, were wide open. So I think if that's improved, um, that could go a long way for him as well. Not having, it, it may even improve, even if his accuracy hasn't changed. He's giving himself higher percentage uh, success, success chances for passes to 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 be in a good spot with um, with receivers that are in a better spot to, to throw to. And the last thing I'll say about Burmeister is the better rapport with wide receivers that he has from playing with them for longer, because these guys have been in the program together now for a while. Yep, That should help knowing where they're going to be, their feel on the offense and that kind of thing. So I do feel good about his potential. I really do. I don't feel good about necessarily the depth behind him because yeah. I think Knox Kadem could be a valuable quarterback one day. I don't know if he's ready to start games this year. And he's our number two right now. You got Blumrick, who was a running back about a year ago, yep. and Bullock is a true freshman. Yep. So I'm concerned uh, about our depth at quarterback. Hopefully we never get there, but uh, we seem to get there most seasons. <laughs> that's that's right. So it would be it would be astonishing if we get through the season without seeing Kadem uh, hit the field uh, in at least you know a handful of games. Yeah. Let's go to our overall thoughts on the offense before we move to defense. We got lots of guys returning, but a lot of unknowns. I think the O-line will bounce back from the losses and still be very good. Will Braxton build on his momentum from last year? Will the wide receiver step up? It could really be a fantastic year if he takes that leap and the O-line stays reliable because we have the depth at running back. But injuries and rotations of guys is going to be the story for this team on offense because we are not deep at QB. We're not deep at offensive line. We're not deep at wide receiver. The numbers that we had last year, we're not going to reach 20th in the SP plus. We're not going to reach 16th in yards per play, but top 40 in those two categories to me is reasonable and would provide for a pretty good season if we hit that. I think it's definitely reasonable. If the offensive line comes together and gives the pass protection, and honestly, in some instances, the the run protection for Burmeister, assuming it's it's designed to not scramble, if, if they can give him some good pass protection with the wide receiving talent and the tight end talent that we have, I think it it should definitely be in the in the top forty. I think we'll come up with a solution at running back. I don't think it's going to look as good as it did last year. I think that would be asking for a ton given the season that, uh, that happened obviously. And, and Herbert, um, breaking records. I think it'll be good, not great. Um, but it really hinges this year. I think on what the passing game looks like. I think that's going to really impact what the upside potential is for this team. Absolutely. Let's move to the defense. If you're ready, man. Mm-hmm. 
as I said before, Coach Ham, he really needs to get this group on track after a weird season in his first year as defensive coordinator. It's going to be difficult. We lost Diablo. We lost Ashby. We lost Justice Reed. We lost Hewitt. We lost Crawford. We lost Devin Taylor. And all those guys played a lot. Belmar. So it's... It's not a rebuild. This is by f- not a rebuild at all. We have a lot of guys that are coming back because with way COVID worked, it allowed a lot of different guys to play a lot. Yep. So the front four at the beginning of last year and the front four at the end of last year <laughs> was massively different, but it was already in place at some point throughout the season. So it's not just starting all the way fresh. We were 95th in yards per play against – Ooh. 48th in defensive S&P plus 82nd in scoring defense and an ACC worst 6.3 yards per play when seven defenders were in the box. That shows you how poor our run defense was and at times how poorly our front seven and linebackers played. So it's uh, there's work to be done here, despite the fact of bringing a lot of guys back and how excited everyone is about picking up Jordan Williams and, and Devin Hunter being back on the team. It's not a guarantee that this defense is significantly improved from last year. I think they will be, Yeah, but it's not a guarantee. Yeah, I think it's to your point on and on that stat, it's it's not going back totally to the, the Bud Foster, make them one-dimensional, not as much that as it is. We got to do something about the run defense in, in getting it serviceable this year. I wouldn't even call it really serviceable last year. And what it did was it allowed people... At certain times, how many times did people, it just looked like five yards was just easy for them. And it looked just absolutely, we can get five, six yards on this play. It was like, well, we gave up almost nine, I think it was 4.9 yards per carry. Yeah. So there on every carry. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it just looked like, hey, you know, if we, on second down, I mean, even on third down, third and, and four, third and, and five, people felt like they really didn't have, that would normally just be a straight passing down on, on, on there, and they weren't, and they, they didn't need to, and that was frustrating. I think that put a lot of pressure um, and really gave a lot of flexibility to quarterbacks to feel like uh, and opened up the downfield threat for them and, and gave them some a lot more confidence in, in just knowing that they had a run game that could that could benefit them to the tune of four to six yards on any given play. So I think that's really going to make or break what we think about this season when we're you know looking back uh, down the road. Yeah, I want to start in the back end because you know I'm high on yeah. the DBs this year. I, I I put it on the line in the Bold Predictions podcast, but I think this group will be a lot better. How much is the question without Diablo, without Taylor, the the early COVID problems really helped the back end for this season because I think in the UNC game last year we were missing our top six safeties. If you include, I think if you include Hunter, yeah. I think we were missing our top six safeties, and that is just ridiculous. The fact that we only lost the game by eleven when you're playing a guy like Sam Howell was kind of amazing. We were sixty first in opposing passer rating against. It was a hundred and thirty five rating. That's something I talked about before, and that was just as bad as the dreadful twenty eighteen season. And for a university that likes to pump the DBU thought, that is just not acceptable to be sixty first in opposing passer rating. But with Devin Hunter back and Keonta Jenkins a full year in the system, 
I feel very good about our starting safeties. Losing Taylor is a blow, but he he really wasn't very good last year, playing kind of out of position and straight from FCS. Yeah. I'm not sure how much of a loss it will be. It's, it's a depth loss, let's just say that. Yep. But Hunter and Jenkins, I think, are rock solid as starters. The interesting thing is behind them, it's probably going to be Jalen Stroman, yep. the, the true freshman. I think he's already passed J.R. Walker. Yeah, I think chart. he is. And, and then uh, Tay Daly, the guy from Vanderbilt. I think he's got... A good bloodline, and hey, that's right. It's hard to, it's hard to. Vanderbilt, I, I'm not doubting his talent whatsoever, but it's a little tough to to know what's coming with somebody coming from. At least he's gone up against good good teams, and he's seen them out there. <laughs> but uh, I guess you could say. But I feel good about it. I, I you know, with with Jenkins and Hunter uh, there, I, and I do think Strowman. Um, it, it sounds like he's he's doing really well. He's picking up things quickly, so I think that's probably um, the key backup. Uh, he's gonna course. play, yeah. And I think he I think he'll be productive this season. But I feel really good about the the safeties. I think that the pickup, obviously, with with Hunter coming back, is is huge. And he's been in the program for a while. He should have. Um, this should really be the season that we've all been talking about, where he he really starts to break out. I, I certainly hope so. Uh, I feel better about the DBs mainly because of the cornerbacks, though. And that's because Waller's back after the injury plagued 2020. Dorian Strong, you know how much I love him. And then we talked about him and Chapman competing for that opposite end DB1 slot. Brian Murray provides the depth. And you got like, what is it, Thompson back there as yep. well. You have you have Connor that's going to play some whip nickel. You got Peoples that's going to play some whip yep. nickel. So if you include Connor in this DB group, I mean, it is a really strong group. Jamari Connor, he led us in tackles, led the team in sacks in 2019. He struggles in coverage at times, and I totally get, get that, particularly against UNC in the past. He has struggled in coverage. But he's still perhaps the most important player on the defense. Uh, he plays hard. He hits hard. He's an emotional leader next to Dax. And, I, you know, so much hinges on him having a great season. And I do think he'll have a great season. And you combine that with a couple potential shutdown corners, potential, uh, it could be special in the back end. Yeah, I would agree. I think we can, I think we run, you know, probably six deep that we can feel pretty good about um, at that position. So I agree. It's, it's probably not doesn't have the top end talent necessarily or um, the ceiling maybe that we've seen in the past with kind of like a top two uh, cornerbacks you know going back to you know the fuller days but um, it's I think there's a lot more depth there I think we can put more rotation in I think we can keep guys fresh without too much of a fall off and um, you know the defensive back position and, and those cornerbacks, they have, it's gotten harder and harder to be a cornerback uh, and to play defense um, in both the NFL and in college as well. The fresher that you can keep them where they don't have to cheat as much and if they can keep solid legs underneath them uh, is, is really helpful from a, a penalty uh, standpoint, from a confidence standpoint. And I have a feeling that these guys are going to put up some, some good stats, whether it's picks or, or you know just uh, pass blocks. Uh, throughout the season let's move to linebacker there's a lot of experience in this group but I have gone back and forth with how strongly I feel that it's going to be a great linebacking core Mm -hmm. because on its face it's like oh Dax I've known that name for years top 150 recruit 
he's finally getting to play his natural position. Tisdale finally gets to start and play a full season at backer. Like, this is so good. that This is exactly what we've been waiting for. But Dax hasn't been a perfect player. He's a perfect player from a he will do whatever it takes. He will practice hard. He'll work hard. He'll study in school, all that stuff. But on the field, he he has a hard time shedding blocks. He has a hard time knowing where to be, you know. And I'm hoping that it all clicks for him. They're calling him a coach on the field. I, he is the heart of the defense. If, if he, Like I said, right next to Connor, those two guys, they're the heart and soul of this defense. Yep. And he finally gets to start at Mike. So I'm happy for him. I'm hoping he breaks out. You have a bold prediction on him basically breaking out. Uh, but I am, I am nervous that he's not, Rayshard Ashby. Well, I don't think many people are. So that's. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and Rayshard had a bad year last year. Yeah. It, it, the, I'm talking about yeah. when he was, you know, playing at his best. Yeah. Back in uh, 2019. So it's, I hear you. I think he'll be fine now that he's in that middle slot. I, I really do. And I think he'll feel like he has more control. I think it's going to help the defense in general. I think from that spot, um, it's a it's a critical spot on the field. You have a lot of control of where things are moving. You get to see a lot of the field and and help signal into other people there. I think it's going to put him in a place where he feels more comfort. You know, it's it's kind of like they always say, you know, dress, wear a nice suit to an interview. The better you you know you look, you, the better you're going to feel. The better you feel, the better you're going to present yourself. I think in that in that environment, he's really going to show a lot more. He's always had control over the defense, but be more in his comfort zone and making the right calls, the right reads for himself. Um, and I think it's going to, I'm hopeful that it's going to work out. Uh, yeah, it could unlock him yeah. a little bit. Just, you know, I, and I actually feel really good about Dean Ferguson being named his backup. I, I've heard a lot of good things about Dean Ferguson. Uh, he he seems to have passed Keyshawn Artis on the Mike pecking order here. And Keyshawn is probably going to play some Mike snaps at some point this year, yep. but he's much longer than Ashby. He's he's six two. Uh, Dean Ferguson, that is. He's six two, two twenty eight. That, that's a lot different frame than what we've seen at the Mike position the last couple of years. And I think that's where they want to go. Yeah. They want to get longer towards the Dean Fergusons of the world, towards the CJ McCrays of the world in the linebacking core, and that helps in coverage. That helps in a lot of different ways, bringing guys down, getting off blocks, all that kind of stuff. You have longer arms, so. I'm excited about what we have at Mike, what we could be going forward, but I, I, I am still hesitant. With Tisdale, just like Dax, waiting to play the position full-time, but he's finally added the weight, and he is longer. He is a prototypical backer. He has the speed. I love Tisdale. A lot of people have loved Tisdale. We've been kind of waiting for him to ascend. Bud compared him to Xavier DB when yep. the first couple years, like that actually came out of his mouth. So it would seem like the potential is there. And I, I just also want that to get unlocked. Yeah. And I think now that it, him being in that position is almost, it's almost more critical that he elevates his game and he elevates for the defense than it is what Dax does um, at that middle spot. Because a lot of those runs that I was alluding to were on were on the outside. I mean that that is going to be, and he's that's where we need to shut things down. We need to make the field a lot more narrow than it was last year because it was not at all narrow. Uh, people were cutting to the outside, 
and it felt like they that's where they were getting five, six, seven yards chunks all the time, and nobody was there. Um, Think was- about the UNC game and those gaping holes and Carter and Williams just running through it. That can't happen this year, or we're gonna we're gonna struggle big time. Yeah. So the final unit we're going to talk about is the defensive line. This is a revamped unit. Four new starters than we had at the beginning of last year. And that unit, which transitioned throughout the season, was ninth in sacks per game, despite rotating guys. Ninth as a team, I think almost virtually every sack, maybe subtract like six, came from the defensive line. So even with moving guys in and out, it was a very good unit. Yeah, and it, it was coming from different places, it seemed like, uh, as well. Obviously, it would be when you're rotating that many people in, but it's a, it's weird to have this much of a, an overhaul in terms of the defensive unit, but I feel like, you know, there's there's obviously been, you know, a little bit of difficulty here in terms of, you know, finding consistency, finding pressure from the edge, consistently i know people are still getting there and it's still happening but it hasn't been consistent um and i'm hopeful that we can we can get four guys out there this season that that can really do it i don't know um this is probably the position that people were starting to get the most comfortable with i'm still a little bit uh, wait till you see wait till you see what happens out on the field i'm not really sure what this production is going to be i feel really good about barno um really good um but Outside of that, I think you know the rest of the guys have had flashes of of really. If you really think back to like Eli Adams had some games like he, that he like showed up in, and everybody's like, "Well, where did Eli Adams like come from?" And but then it was like it would disappear, right? And I'm just wondering if we're going to have the consistency and be able to get consistent pressure and um, you know set that foundation for the linebackers to really do what we were just talking about, which is narrowing the field in. That consistent term is is the key because that ninth in sacks per game leads you to believe this was probably a pretty good defense, but it wasn't. <laughs> so what? Where's like how do you be ninth in sacks per game, but ninety fifth in yards per play? I I don't understand that. This was an all or nothing kind of D line. They they'd come out, they'd get like three sacks in two series, and then they'd get nothing for yeah. the rest of the game. And it was kind of similar to the offense in that regard. It, and Tierlink and Jayham, they adjusted over the season, moving guys around. And Barno wasn't even playing defensive end really until fall <laughs> camp or like the second game of the year last year. Right. And so he has a lot of room to grow still. And that is why I am excited about the defensive line, mainly because of Barno, but also getting Garbit back, who yeah. we thought had so much potential at one point. But the Eli Adams, the Jalen Griffins at defensive end, that's it. Yeah. There is like nothing behind them. And even those guys, you never know what you're going to get. Exactly. Yeah, those are those are not your consistency guys. I guess, you know, Fuga, I mean, it, you're really, it could get thin very, very quickly at this position yeah, if you, as yeah, well. Yeah, if you move over to DT, like, yeah, we've got Fuga and we've got Kendricks and the new guy, Williams and yeah. Pollard. And those four guys, they're solid. Kendricks struggled quite a bit last year, but yeah. it's at least four solid guys. Yeah. But there is nothing behind them either. And I, I like Pollard and I like Williams. I think Williams can could potentially be very good. Uh it because w- there were so many things that went wrong in the defensive line last year and just in the way they were playing rather than their raw statistics. Yeah. It, Cause it affected the way the linebackers 
could get to the football because the defensive line wasn't always doing the right thing. And if Williams just gets himself in the right position, uh, not even getting to the quarterback, just taking up space, (laughs) it could greatly help the defense. Yeah. And people are high on Williams because he's a four-star recruit and all, but he's done nothing. Yeah. Like he's done nothing in his career. And you need to remember that. I hope he's great. The talent is there, but you got to keep in mind, like Pollard has shown us a lot more than Williams ever did show anybody. And it, the cohesiveness between Pollard and Williams is going to be critical. They, they really need to to figure that out. Our best defensive units and they're, they're never elite elite, but our best up front at tackle positions is really when you have those two have a really good feel for each other. Um, and they know what the other is going to be doing. So I'm hopeful that that takes, um, that really helps because you're right. Pollard's shown stuff. Williams, we really haven't seen much at all. Yeah. Uh, I did kind of disrespect Max Philpot saying there's nothing behind it because Max was on scholarship last spring. It's a little unclear whether he's on scholarship now, but he was a walk on and a very good high school player. And potentially he could provide us a little bit of the depth at defensive tackle too. But I am nervous about that defensive end depth. If we were to lose a starter, it, it, we're going to have a hard time generating a pass rush because for as much as Reed was inconsistent and Hewitt was inconsistent and Belmar was inconsistent and got hurt, like those guys still racked up some stats last year and they were veterans, you know, and, and we can't say that about this crew. I think if Barno takes the leap, if he can get off the line a little bit faster, uh, just learn how to play the position. And he will, because he's so, he was so green last year. He gets take a major step up, hit my 20 tackles for loss, hit my 10-plus sacks that I predicted him for, and it could be a very good unit because the key to this season is getting to the quarterback. Keep getting to the quarterback and not just be ninth in sacks per game, but actually have a good defense behind it. <laughs> yes. it's uh, Yeah, not just have the highlight stat. It's that. We need the, uh, the, full, the full amount. So overall thoughts on the defense, Robbie? So it, it's... I, I don't I don't see a scenario where it gets worse. So let's start with that. So <laughs> I, how, I agree. How, I agree. I think it should be better. Um, and it's gonna be for and I think what it's really gonna come down to. And I've been saying this for me with everything we just said. It, it's gonna be about the the linebackers. Uh, I really feel like the defensive backs are gonna be fine. I think we have a really good unit there, and we have enough. We have enough guys there that if somebody's struggling or if it's not working, I think we can shift some people around and I think we have enough talent there to, to make it work where we, if we want to just go over year over year improvement need to improve. It's on those run plays that, you know, I was talking about. Um, and I think the, it's not enough just to get the pressure and get the sack and, and that's it. And then the QB shakes it off and they know that they're still good, right? That's that's one play out of all the snaps that they're going to take, out of the 70 plays that they're going to have. It's not that big of a deal because they're not feeling the pressure. There's not they could they feel like they can lean back on their running backs and they can they can get chunk yards. So I think um, you know, that that linebacker position I think is really going to be critical and and the depth, like you said, and keeping those defensive ends healthy so that we can um, we can get some pressure on the outside. I think that's I feel like it's going to take a step forward. I just don't know how much. Yeah. There are veterans everywhere on this defense and they will absolutely improve over last year. I'm with you on that. But it's thin across DL and linebacker. 
we've got to somehow improve on that scoring defense. I tweeted out today, over the last three years, we've given up 35-plus points in 46% of our games. 17 out of 37 games over a three-year span. That's not a short span. We're giving up 35-plus. This has been a bad defense. The talent this year is actually there. You look at our front seven. We got five four stars. Yeah. We got almost a five star playing starting safety for us in the back. Like the the talent is there. Will the coaching be there? Yeah. So much of it depends on Coach Ham, the yeah. position that him and the other coaches put these guys in. Does JC Price and Tierlink make their money this year? Like I I'm very curious to see how these guys are coached because the last couple years, even Bud's last couple years. The, de- the defense was not good yeah. and not being coached very well. You can't you can't blame it on lack of talent. Yeah. <laughs> there are six four stars on this starting defense. Yeah, if you could get into a scenario where we could be blaming things on injuries, and that that could happen, that could transpire. But assuming well, there's going to be injuries, but assuming that we don't have one of those snake bit years that we have had in the past where it's been just crushing. Assuming that doesn't happen, then you, I don't think you can blame it on, on the talent. I think there's enough talent here to put together a really solid defense. Um, so it would come back to to Ham and, and to Tierlink and and seeing what those guys can really do with a true offseason um, and, and getting yeah. ready. And like you said, Ham wasn't even on the sidelines for two of the, the first two games last year. <laughs> right. it's, it, was, it was crazy. So I'm, I'm ready to wash that away, which, mm-hmm. but it also leaves me wondering what we're going to see this season leaves me wondering what the the, what the ceiling is what the what the floor is when we have a bad game and and how that's going to transpire my ceiling's just about the ceiling ceiling 30 to 35 in the sp plus defense uh and then moving up 45 spots in yards per play and being a top 50 team in yards per play yeah because i do think that pam kind of plays a style or he wants to play a style that you can get some chunk yards. So the yards per play might never be super low. I don't know. But the S&P Plus ranking, if you're a good defense, you're a good defense, and that will reciprocate that. So mm-hmm. 35 you know, ish would be like kind of where I see this team being able to reach if, if everything comes together. Special teams preview, Robbie. You ready? <laughs> Keep it short. <laughs> we got we got Shadley as the long snapper. He's back. Uh, John Parker Romo going to take over as the kicker. We saw him yep. not only kick but punt last year. <laughs> we did. He was uh, he was doing everything. The punter should be Peter Moore, but maybe Romo will do it at some point. Tavion Robinson is going to return punts again, and he was great two years ago at it. Last year mm-hmm. it was kind of a disaster, and they had to they had to pull him off. Um, and he admitted that he didn't work very hard at it when he was kind of asked about it. So he seems back and ready. And then Keyshawn King will take over Herbert's duties in the kick return and uh, be the kick returner again. And I like that. I actually really like both of those return guys. Yeah, I do as well. It'll be, I feel like we haven't talked about this before, but slowly, and we were we were victimizing other people with this. I feel like the return game in college football is slowly taking a step back from being that important, quite honestly. The kickers are getting stronger. You're kicking more more balls into the end zone, which is nullifying um, kick returns in general. On punts, people are getting faster. They're getting downfield. The kickers, the kickers are kicking them higher um, to avoid that. So 
but I do like those two in that, that spot. I just think five years from now, we're going to be thinking about, you know, even if we keep, even if it's still around, I mean, there's still talks about getting rid of kickoffs in yeah. general and just yeah. snap and starting it at the 25. I just think, um, but if I wanted anybody there, I think it's, I think it's those two. Um, assuming that they're, you know, they, they really put the effort into it to your point about Robinson. Yeah. So let's do our last final predictions for the season record. I, I think they're not going to change too much, but why don't you tell me what you got for the season record? Are you maintaining that seven and five? I am. So I have, um, I have seven and five. I took a layer deeper, so I'll give all my games. So I have, a close loss actually against UNC. I think you, you feel maybe a little bit less certain of that now. Um, there's nothing mind blowing here. So I'll hit the easy ones. I do have us losing to Notre Dame, UNC and Miami. So I'm going against my bold predictions. Um, and then I have a loss, um, against, um, Pitt. And then I have us, Boston uh, college, uh, Yes, actually, I do have Boston College as a loss. Sorry. All right. Yeah, and I, I think I'm not too far off from you there. The, I'm, I'm going with the six and six still, and I, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. It's just that's just the way I feel about the team this year. I think the depth will catch up with us, but we'll see. Uh, the defense has to improve a lot, and the offense can't drop off too much if you want to win more than six or seven games. And I have maintained that if Fuente pulls off an eight-win season, if he beats one of Notre Dame or UNC, I will be very impressed. You know, I I really will be. But I'm going to go with six and six. Uh, The the sneaky hard schedule, losses, I, you know, it's hard to predict losses, but I'm going UNC, Notre Dame, West Virginia, BC, Miami, and then one of Pitt or UVA. And I know that's kind of cheating, but I don't really care. <laughs> uh, it's because it could be the Duke game. It could be the Syracuse game. There's, there's no way to know, yep. but, um, but yeah, six and six is what I got. And, and hopefully I'm pleasantly surprised. If you had to put a percentage Robbie on getting to the ACC title game and winning the coastal, what, did, what percentage would you put on Virginia tech winning the coastal? Okay. Against everybody. So it'd be against like 20, the field, yes. against the field. Okay. So then it has to be, I guess, now 20% chance, okay. 15, 20. Yeah. I put it at 10. I put a 10% chance, and, and maybe that's a little low. I I just think that Miami and UNC are really strong, and I have waffled back and forth on which one I think will win the Coastal, but I'm going to go with UNC because they get Miami at home mm-hmm. this year. So I'll go with UNC as my Coastal pick, but I'll give – I'll give you Virginia Tech a 12% chance. How about that? There you go. Exactly 12. I like it. <laughs> 12%, yes. I mean, the, um, and the, the problem is, is that for me, and in, in thinking about those odds, so much of that is contingent on that UNC game. Like, if you if we pull off a win against UNC, that has such a multiplier effect because now they have one loss and they are, you know, the clear coastal favorites. I think it's some true. people. That that's right from game one. Those percentages are going to shift. Oh, it yeah. could shift dramatically for Virginia Tech. If if we beat UNC, the chances of winning the coastal I think goes to like sixty five percent or something, or sixty or something like fifty maybe because you still have Miami out there. But it goes way up, yeah. way way up for sure. And that's why I just think it's it becomes a little bit binary for me, which is difficult than how you would normally think of it, just because of that first game is so early mm-hmm. that. Normally you would be waiting till, you know, 
ACC play later in the season, but that's really going to set the tone and the tenor um, for for the year. Well, Robbie and I are going to record our UNC preview in about five minutes. You're going to hear it in about two days, but that's going to do it for this season preview podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. A little long, but there's a lot to get through on these things. And you can subscribe. It's you know at 2DVT on Twitter, 2DVT on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. 2DVT.com is the website. Go there to see all the beers we've had. Um, you can stream every podcast on there. Check out our stats etc etc and until next time when we're previewing unc and getting you ready for friday go hokies <laughs> <laughs>